Some bonds last a lifetime. Some bonds inspire confidence. And some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer and don't be gloomy. You see, every day the sense of gloom seems to grow more palpable, including today where the Dow lost 103 points, the S&P dipped 0.21%, and the Nasdaq inched up one measly basis point. At one point, though, we were down dramatically. It was just a nasty, horrible opening. And it seemed like the whole world was hitting the exits at once. I don't want to dismiss the worries about tariffs or rising rates. That'd be foolish. But at some point, we need to remember that we've got a blazing hot economy here. And, and yet the negativity is so pervasive, so, so, so downright just, it, it, it's, it's all encompassing. That if I were one of these firms that would gin up ETFs, I would create a gloom index. It's a group of stocks that exemplifies this overwhelming pessimism. Yep, we need an ETF. Obviously, it should trade under the symbol GLOM. The bears can sell it whenever they're feeling down and out. Bulls who are just kind of, for the moment, chicken, just blow it out. I mean, you know, with a little, uh, those of us with a little more composure might actually consider buying it, right, or shorting the GLOM index. But I've got to tell you, it's out of control, people. What would I put in this GLOM index? Let's start with Caterpillar. People sell Caterpillar every time they feel downbeat. Hey, Cat is a very cyclical company, so people dump it when they're worried that President Trump has wrecked world trade, right? Wrecked, isn't that the right verb? Wrecked world trade with his 25% steel tariff, 10% aluminum tariff. Oh, yeah, and this is the end. It's the end, my friend, the end. Thank you, Jim Morrison. The sky is falling. Woe is me. I can't handle it anymore. Seriously, though, I like this company, Caterpillar, a lot. It's literally doing better than ever. But as long as we keep hearing about peaking earnings and trade wars, you can't go wrong making Cat the biggest position in the glum ETF. Next. Well, you know what next is. You hear about it every day at 935 when we're too negative. It's Boeing. This is another one that gets ding whenever investors get sad. They're about to cry about the global economy. The stock simply cannot advance on days marred by trade uh, tariff talk as investors fret that President Trump has somehow single-handedly wrecked the world economy. Please repeat after me. Wrecked the world economy. Doesn't matter how many times management traces out the sky-high demand or how many times I point out that China needs Boeing more than Boeing needs China. It's strictly sell-sell-sell. The stock is a cornerstone of my new ETF. Glum. Third, many investors are repulsed. I mean, downright repulsed 
by 3M here because they think it's a totally adrift bunch of jokels in, in a time of turbulent Trump spurred tsunami selling that's knocking down 3M's earnings every day. 3M has become a total pride here. Even as their products tend to be pretty beloved overseas, the sellers don't care, which is why 3M personifies the doom and gloom ETF. It's a tariff pinata! Same goes for, oh my, was this sound added for this name? General Electric. It's a charter member of Glum. The consensus on GE is that it's a total mess across the board. The power business is horrendous. And when they lay off workers, it's viewed as a sign that things are even worse than we thought. With any other company, it would be a sign that management's doing what needs to be done. Not with GE. The debt. The long-term care tail risk. Oh, boy. The pension issues. The lack of capital coming from GE Capital. The health care unit that was so stupidly spurned. A $20 billion bid from Danaher. These are all nuts. Nightmares that make it a perfect fit for our gloom index. Just wait until it cuts the dividend, which is inevitable, right? Because if you believe Steve Tucson from GPM, uh, from JP Morgan, the, the leading GE uh, gloomster, well, it has to happen, right? I mean, isn't it? Isn't it a fact of life? Hey, maybe it happened tonight. Maybe it already happened. Of course, GE is a huge oil and gas business now, and the stock has done nothing as crude as rallied. The company obviously hasn't capitalized on it. But don't expect anyone to be to care as long as gloom reigns supreme, that company can do no right. Fifth, somehow, J&J. I'm not kidding. Johnson & Johnson has fallen victim to the negative Nancys. Doesn't seem to matter that they have a, big, a huge beneficiary of the weak dollar because now, of course, the dollar is strong. No one cares that it's got eight big new drugs coming out or that it's an amazingly steady company with AAA balance sheet. Nah, the stock can't get any traction. It's awful. It's glum. Forget that one. Six, Citigroup. Oh, City, City, it gives me a headache. I mean, it's so horrible, right? I mean, nothing it does seems to work, uh, even when it should. This stock wants to go down because it's viewed as the bank with all the worst exposure everywhere. Never mind that Citi's prospects, both overseas and domestically, actually remain strong. No matter, uh, no, what matters is, is that they pay too much for the Costco deal. That's the new part of the narrative. Yeah, people really believe that. You can't make this stuff up. Citi has now gone from being a very good company to being a pathetic one. And yet I swear to you, nothing's changed. Goldman Sachs? Might as well be the maker, the gloom master. It's simply the kiss of death. It's a virtual basket of sadness. I mean, everything it does is regarded as wrong, right? I mean, it's amazing how the best could be the worst. But Goldman's deeply involved in the zeitgeist of doom and gloom. You'd never guess that the huge investment bank is it's actually doing well. But that doesn't fit. Doesn't, it doesn't work with the ETF I'm trying to craft here. Hey, why don't we lump in Lenar? Just throw that into the big toxic waste bin, right? It, yeah, it's a big home builder. We know that a trade war has to hurt Lenar because it needs imported lumber. Plus, there aren't a lot of houses being sold anyway, and higher mortgage rates will crush the whole industry. Or at least that's the, the gloomy theory, so stick that in there. Will you just bury it in there, sweep it under the carpet? Why not Walmart? Yeah, what the heck? It's a worldwide retailer, so it's got to be hurt by a worldwide slowdown. What could be worse at a time when Trump is supposedly wrecking the world? Did, I, did you hear the word wrecking? Hey, autos are the subject of the next trade war, right? Can't go after Tesla. Too many shorts. GM's got this new revaluation based on autonomous driving. Why not just say Ford's gloomy and awful? All right? There we go. 
10 stocks that get hit whenever we start worrying about trade. And I'm not kidding. Every one of these 10. It's like you know they're going to be down from the get-go. So all you have to do from now on is press the glum button. Sell, sell, sell. I need a glum button. Oh, I have one. Now, what's the biggest indictment of this market? That it's just fang, right? Fang, that's triple A. The idea that the only stocks that actually go up are Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Adobe, although it had a down day last week. Wow, how did that happen? Netflix and Alphabet, which just had a positive note about its search come out today. I mention this because the love of fine is part and parcel with the hatred of glum, because these are stocks that don't need global growth in order to thrive. Oh, and just wait until Fang gets caught up in the trade war worries is what I keep hearing today. You'll hear that Facebook will be banned for privacy. Amazon will be prosecuted for monopoly. Apple will be shut out of China. Adobe had a weak quarter. And there's $2 billion fine coming at the alphabet from EU. Now, that could very easily become the new narrative, even if it's ridiculous. But here's the thing. It's not just Fang that's actually going higher. The strength extends throughout tech. AMD's an old-school maker processors and graphics chips. It's on fire. Dropbox is crushing it. Because in a world where content increasingly scattered and digital tools are fragmented, people need a unified home for this stuff. And, and that's Dropbox. You know, they've gone from $6.5 million paid in 2015, $11 million in now, uh, now. And remember, the company has a network of 500 million free users. So they don't need to upsell that many in order to keep that crazy growth coming. Microsoft isn't fang, but it does have some extraordinary cloud growth. Retailers who want to embrace the cloud don't need to work with the leading player in the space, Amazon, so they can take their business to Microsoft. I think the stock is still cheap. Twitter's getting revalued upward. It's the epitome of the new guard, a stock with a firm new set of advertisers who want more than just Facebook and Google. Squared and PayPal. Squared and PayPal aren't, are, they're not fang, but they're going higher. Both are payments companies, with Square making a killing from small, medium-sized businesses. PayPal's going international, making itself very popular among millennials thanks to Venmo. Workday's off to the races on a simple catch-up play to the rest of the cloud kings. Red Hat is going higher because it helps on board more traffic to the cloud. Hey, same goes for New Relic. Have you seen that one, Lucerne's? That's another cloud stock that just won't quit that is not part of FANG, but people refuse to acknowledge it. And look, it's more than just tech even. Chevron rallied nicely on an analyst recommendation that called them out as the best major in terms of oil leverage. Diamondback and Pioneer joined the move in the expectation that there will be no real boost in oil production when OPEC meets later this year. Yes, there's actually plenty of stuff that's working in this market. You just don't hear about it because it doesn't fit the gloomy narrative. So here's the bottom line. Glum's the word. It is all pervasive as investors freak out about President Trump's tough trade policies. That's why we got to have this ETF. You're feeling glum? Go sell some glum. Trump got you down. You know what I'm saying? Glum. As for me, though, I think these stocks are buys into weakness. As the negativity at last, as of this morning, when I put out that Twitter note saying, please, anyone, type, tweet me something positive. The negativity, it's gotten completely out of hand. Steve in Illinois. Steve. Jim, thanks for taking my call. Of course, Steve. I have a quick question about Portola Pharmaceuticals. This seems to advance past the spec stage into uh, Blockbuster. They have two FDA approvals in the last seven months. Could turn into major drugs. I'm wondering if this is a slow ramp-up, build-out type process. No, we like Portola. Portola. We like Portola for all the reasons you talked about it. And it's down down 14% for the year. Uh, and I think it's an interesting situation. I'm going to be on board, but remember, just for spec, some of these are going to come back 
Not everything is gloomy. I was really down this morning. I just couldn't read a single paper. I've been reading the papers all my life. But there wasn't a single positive article about how we're doing in this country and how well trade is actually going for us. But you know what? Maybe I'm just old-fashioned. So we're in need of a glum index to match this glum that everybody's got just on their minds. It's a fabulous narrative that I can't bust. It is so ugly. I think these stocks are buys on any negativity, but I'm giving them to you to know that this is what people are selling. On Mad Money tonight, it's a company that's trying to replicate the Apple Store model with weed. As the nation slowly legalizes marijuana state by state, I'm asking MedMen CEO how it's able to position itself at the forefront of the space. Then, there's some of the hottest plays out there, but can you move in enterprise software stocks continue? Can it really? I'm going to give you my take on a red-hot sector. And I'm revealing what's really driving the sluggish global growth that we're seeing in this market. So stick with Glum if you're really unhappy and you think that Trump is wrecking world trade. And stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. imagine I'd spend so much time talking about marijuana on television. Not really my area of expertise, but now that it's been legalized in state after state, it's becoming big business, and that's something I do know about. Now, last month, a U.S. licensed cannabis firm called MedMen, not to be confused with MedMen, executed a reverse takeover to become a publicly traded company in Canada, where the federal laws on this stuff are a lot more lenient. MedMen is a major player in America's budding pot industry, operating in New York, California, and Nevada. They grow it, but more importantly, they're best known for their retail locations, which have been dubbed the Apple Store of Weed. They want to be the consumer cannabis company. To be blunt, it's an intriguing concept. So could this stock be worth owning, even if it's only listed in Canada? Let's take a closer look with Adam Bierman, the co-founder and CEO of MedMen Enterprises, to learn more about his company's business and the incredible growth of this industry. Mr. Bierman, welcome to Mad Money. Good oh, to see you, sir. Thank you for Have having me. Have a seat. Me. Absolutely. Okay, so first, California, uh, New York, Nevada. Why those? And now Florida, which we're really now excited Florida, about. Which you just bought. <clears throat> well, but not, nothing, can we buy it yet in Florida? It's doors. Medical. 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 Medical only. You just mentioned uh, the four most important marijuana markets uh, on planet Earth today. So, uh, yes, we are excited to be in those four markets. And uh, eight and a half years into this, um, we've been hyper-focused on just being in the most important markets and controlling the most important retail assets in those markets. And that's where we are, and that's where we'll continue to grow. Now, uh, the natural person would say, well, wait a second. How about Oregon, Washington, and Colorado? But they're pretty saturated, aren't they? Horrible markets to be in. Horrible, right? Um, but you got to understand the evolution of this industry, right? Those were the first three markets. Right. Uh, good for business that those are tiny markets that, in the grand scheme of things, right. maybe matter not that much. Um, and those are more free market environments. What's really important to understand is every market since those markets came online um, have been supply constrained. Um, so limited licenses, uh, and most importantly, especially for the MedMen's case, the most arduous retail zoning restrictions known to man. Well, uh, how about Massachusetts? What's taking so long? This is what it is when something evolves, right? We're going from But a dispensary, nothing... I mean, how much is, how long does it take? 
Uh, it's bureaucratic, man. Really? And that's, is, huh? You know, that's what it is. I mean, you know, 19, over 25 years ago, California legalized medical marijuana. Um, it's been quite a journey. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of speed and a lot of momentum now. I think that, you know, the end of prohibition is near. But, you know, things don't happen overnight. And that's okay. Uh, for a $75 billion market uh, here in the U.S., it's okay if it takes a few years to evolve. Now, uh, your revenues have exploded this year, right? I mean, it's been rather amazing how much sales you've been able to garner from these beautiful new stores. I, I, I appreciate it. I mean, you know, for me, every day I wake up, I'm intent on building the biggest marijuana brand right. in the world. Um, our more mature stores in California are doing over $20 million a year in revenue, and we currently have licenses for 45 stores. So wow. a lot of work to do. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, revenue is big for me. You know, when we get to a billion dollars of revenue, uh, we'll look at what's next. But uh, a lot of work to be done. Okay, so let me understand this. You did a, what was confusing to me, admittedly, a uh, reverse Canadian merger. And there was also a flap about your uh, pay package, of which I th understand you've made some revisions to the executive compensation plan. So just fill me on the arc of that. Well, I mean, look, let's talk about Canada. Okay. Um, <clears throat> from the beginning, we've been the why not people. Um, why not? Eight and a half years ago, why not? Why can't you build a legitimate business in this industry? Right. Why not? Why can't you build a billion dollar business in this industry? Why not? Why can't you take the biggest U.S. weed company and make it public and available for people to own all over the world? Now, there's a lot of roadblocks in that right. kind of an attitude, and we can't list here in the U.S., so we have to list in Canada, and, and unfortunately, you know, that's the only place to go. Now, fortunately, it is a place to go, and they've been right. great partners, and we were really excited about everything that went on, and, you know, we're now listed on the CSE. We got our OTC ticker today as well. And the compensation package issue has been resolved, right? You reopened it, and you gave yourself, you know, a better deal for the shareholders. Well, look, there's a lot of noise, right? And right. there's a lot of noise. This is a nascent industry, a lot of noise. I think what investors need to hone in on is really two basic fundamentals. The defensibility of the thesis of these businesses. Right. Um, and the track record of performance. And so we'll just keep our head down and keep performing the way we have. Now as a public company with even more velocity, right. and we'll be judged on that. All right, so if I went to your owner stores, uh, do I see white coats? Do I see uh, brownies, uh, edibles? Do you see CBD, CBD and THC? Various uh, percentages of CBD and THC. Do I have liquid? Do I have vape? What do I got? You have it all, and it depends on the market, but ultimately you will have it all. And you know, our mission is mainstreaming marijuana. And how do you do that? You make it available for everybody. And you know, this is a consumer product, um, and to address everybody, you have to have something for everybody. So in our stores in California, for example, we have over 1,000 SKUs in those stores. And I think okay. as these markets continue to evolve and mature, I think that's what you'll see across the board. All right, do you have stores that are for recreational, stores that are for stoners, and stores that are medical? Well, our new marketing campaign is Forget Stoner. Um, so we'll push that message, right? Marijuana needs to be mainstream. It's getting right. mainstream. The concept of a stoner or stoner image is something that's yesteryear, right? This is about right. Chardonnay moms. This is about working dads. This is about marijuana substituting and replacing, you know, other things that people are already utilizing um, that in some instances are detrimental to them. Right. right, opioids, this, better than opioids. This is the exit right. to the opioid epidemic. And uh, one last question. Uh, what do you do with the cash? I mean, you're not allowed to use credit cards in this country. Uh, well, first of all, you know, again, prohibition has to end, so this gets treated like right. any other business. That being said, we're fully banked, and, you know, those stories that you see coming out of maybe more the legacy states, Colorado and Washington, right. with bags of cash, that doesn't apply to us. Everything is banked. We take debit cards in lieu of credit Oh, you cards. do take debit cards. About 80% of our transactions are in debit okay, cards. Okay, that's very good to know. Thank you so much. That's Adam Bierman. Uh, Mad, that's MedMen, not MadMen, co-founder and CEO. Mad Money is back after the break. Thank you. What do you do with a red-hot IPO? 
that just keeps roaring higher. How hot is too hot? In other words, when do you know that it's time to ring the register? Lately, the enterprise software stocks have been soaring into the stratosphere, especially the ones that have come public in the last few months. And for good reason. This is a great business to be in at the moment. And when I say at the moment, I'm talking about as good as I've ever seen it in my career. Fresh face IPOs like Zora, Zscaler, Pivotal Software, DocuSign, Carbon Black have made people fortunes. But the problem with, with stocks that go up and then up, and then up some more, is that sooner or later, they become very expensive. So on a decidedly subpar day for the averages, although a nice comeback at the end, I think it's worth considering whether these recent software IPOs have gotten overheated. Why don't we start with Carbon Black? I know it sounds like some sort of coal company, but it is a cybersecurity company that came public last month at $19. It opened at $24.70, and now it's at $34 bucks and change. DocuSign is all about electronic signature technology, something that's been taking the world by storm. Came public at 29 at the end of April, opened at 38. Now trades at just under 64. It's an epic move. Pivotal Software has a cloud-based platform that helps streamline the software development process. Its IPO came at 15. The stock opened at 16.75 in April, and now it's at 27 bucks. Zscaler is a cloud security play that came public at 16 in March, spiked up to 27.50 at the open, and it now trades at $40. Finally, we just had Zora on the show last week. They're at the heart of the subscription economy. They help companies set up just about anything as a subscription service. I like Zora, but man, I mean, this thing, IPO'd at 14 bucks in April, opened at 20, and it's now at $37. Tacked on another 7% today. Oh, those are some magnificent moves, people, and I adore many of these stories. Unfortunately, though, price can matter. And up here, these recent enterprise software IPOs are looking pretty expensive, which, as we say in the business, won't matter until it matters. These are all fairly young companies, so we can't uh, value them on earnings because they are not expected to turn a profit anytime soon. In some ways, that makes it easier to own them because you're not stuck within the four walls of the profit community. How about revenue? Honestly, they don't have that much in the way of sales either. Uh, Carbon Black and Pivotal Software are on the less crazy side, selling for nine times next year's sales. DocuSign and Zora Price are trading at 13 and 14 times. Zscaler sells for an exorbitant 20 times sales. Now, I'm always telling you that money managers will pay up for growth. But do these companies have enough growth to justify such sky-high valuations? When you look at the numbers, we're talking about a, a revenue growth rate, rates ranging from the low 20s to the low 30s for 2019. So how did they get so expensive? What was the process? All right, some of this is perfectly reasonable. At a time when investors are starting to worry about rising interest rates and the impact of tit-for-tat tariffs, all of these companies operate in sexy, secular growth areas that don't really need a strong economy to work. Investors are crowding into tech in general and the enterprise software space in particular. Basically, people want more of what's working. But there are only so many of these business-related software stocks to go around, which gives Carbon Black and DocuSign and Zscaler and Pivotal Software and Zora real scarcity value. Plus, the numbers have been excellent. All five of these companies beat expectations right out of the gate with blowout quarters. Of course, their stocks are going to catch fire. The thing is, a lot of this just has to do with setting expectations. Sandbagging investors with low ball estimates is just part of the IPO process. It's time, Arn. I don't blame anyone for doing it. 
More importantly, we've seen a bunch of takeovers in this software space lately, and that's driven the valuations, too. Salesforce.com told us it was buying MuleSoft for $6.5 billion in March, paying a huge 36% premium. If you got in on the MuleSoft IPO last year, you have more than doubled your money. And Salesforce has seen its own stock value nearly 12% since we learned about the deal, which is only going to increase the urge to merge. I mean, imagine if you bought one of these and your stock goes higher. Well, guess what? They're going higher. Now, my suspicion here was that all five of these were sliver deals, IPOs where they only offer Wall Street a small percentage of the total share count so that there's simply not enough supply to go around and your stock soars. But on closer inspection, no. That's only partially true. With DocuSign and Carbon Black, 88 and 90% of their shares currently trade. Wow, that's pretty amazing. With Zscaler's 46%, which ain't bad for a new tech company. The only ones that could qualify as uh, sliver deals are Pivotal Software and Zora, only 24 and 16% of their shares trade, respectively. So it's clearly not just a lack of stock supply. And honestly, these stretch valuations aren't even unique to the newly minted enterprise software names. If you look at some of the uh, other ones that have come public last year, they also are incredibly expensive. Now, here's a good one. I'm a big fan of Okta, OKTA. That's the fast-growing cybersecurity play with a stock that's up 115% year-to-date. It's the same story. Great narrative, great numbers, extreme valuation, as Okta now sells for 12 times its 2019 sales estimate. How about Kramer fave Coupa Software? You saw them on the show. The cloud prints that came public in late 2016. Coupa's doubled year-to-date, giving us a 34% gain since we spoke to the CEO just six weeks ago. But it now also sells at more than 12 times next year's sales, okay? The banks sell at 12 times earnings. By the way, Coupa got hit with a downgrade this morning by an alpha called BTG. This valuation, and the stock barely bad in an eyelash. Even something like Pluralsight, it's a software company I really don't know much about that, that focuses on technology skill development. It came public just last month, and it's, it's rallied nearly 90%. It now trades at more than 13 times next year's sales yet. Uh, you know, Pluralsight hasn't even reported its first quarter as a publicly traded company. Doesn't that seem excessive to you? I, I think it is excessive. Or, or then you've got this uh, Avalara. It's a tax processing software play that came public just last week at 24. It now sits at 44 after a huge debut on Friday. There aren't even any estimates for this thing yet. Too new. Yet it's already shot into the stratosphere. And what makes this even more crazy is that Avalara only had a 27% revenue growth last year. That may sound like a lot, but a huge software company like Salesforce grew a 25% clip last year. And it is a much more proven track record. So, therefore, how can you go with that one when you can go with Salesforce? Here's the thing. When you bet on any of these red-hot enterprise software IPOs, you're effectively betting that the companies will be able to keep beating the estimates. And while I like this sector a lot, especially Zura and Coupa and Okta, these are, by any means, sky-high valuations. Now, that must make you more cautious, or else you shouldn't watch Mad Money. I mean, you've got to be a little more cautious. Now that investors are bidding up stocks like Pluralsight and Avalar, basically sight unseen, I'm concerned that the group could be due for a pullback. I don't want to be the guy who uh, says it and cries wolf, but if it happens, at least you know. Hey, look, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they absolutely need to be sold here. Far from it. Although, remember, nobody ever got her taking a profit. I just want you to know what you own. And I admit, sometimes we're too cautious to make money. For instance, we caught a, a three-bagger in Canada Goose recently, but we worried that we give it back. Uh, and, and you know what, what happens when the company reports the stock charges forward on an amazing quarter? And I go on Twitter and I'm reviled as a bum, even though a three-bagger is not so bad, people. Every single one of these could be the same. But if any of these fresh-faced enterprise software plays reports a less-than-perfect quarter, its stock will be destroyed. So if you want to own these high flyers, at least understand the risk-reward. 
Here's the bottom line. If you've made a fortune in something like a Zscaler or a Pivotal Software or a DocuSign or a Carbon Black or even a Zora, which I adore, ring the register on part of your position and swap some of that money into a cheaper, more established cloud stock like Salesforce or even Adobe, which is coming back up after a great quarter that people sold, off, sold it off on. Believe me, you'll sleep better with a little less momentum in your portfolio or maybe just pick one of these. And, and, and you'll still own enough that if good things happen next quarter, you'll be thrilled. And if they don't, you'll have taken something off the table in high cotton. Let's go to Kevin in New York. Kevin. Yo, yo, JC, this is Big Kev from New City, New York, and I'm looking to see if First Data, FDC, has more legs to run after this big booyah bull run. It's it was a great yet. quarter, and now it's part of the payment processing royalty, and payment processing royalty uh, is very tough to stop. I felt that when it was in the 15 to 17 range, it was never going to break out of it. That was wrong. Uh, when we had Frank on, Frank Besignano, the CEO, he told a very compelling story. Let's go to Ed in Texas. Ed! Hey, Booyah, Jim from Edden, Texas, Rainy Houston. I've got a question about Western Digital. It's down right. about 7% in the last month. It's generating about $3 a share per quarter in profit. Strong projected earnings. The PE is 6 to 1. It's highly rated. It's about a 2.5% dividend. Why is this, why is this thing falling? Okay, it, it should be it going up. Lot, okay, so it is in disk drives, and those are not, those are in glut. And it's got flash, and flash has been coming down in price. On Wednesday, we're going to hear from Micron. Micron's going to make makes a lot of equipment for Flash. We'll get a better read on whether the world's being over Flash or not. But that's why Western Digital's down uh, where it is, because people feel that both its businesses are being challenged on a cyclical way. Alex in California. Alex. Booyah from Los Angeles, Dr. Kramer. How are you? Hope you had a pleasant Father's Day yesterday, Jim. Uh, yes. Jim, my question is about Cyprus uh, Femi today. I know you like this stock. You I had do. the CEO on the show a while back, and he gave a great outlook about his company and products. The problem is that the stock is trading between $15 and $17 with no end in sight. It seems that the, it's not trading based on its uh, fundamentals. What say you, doctor? Well, look, I mean, I, I just opine on a stock called First Data, and it went 6, 15, 17, 15, 17, 15, 17, and I gave up on value. And I think that there's real value in, Cy- in uh, Cyprus. I don't want you to give up on it. I think it will, a uh, value will will out in the end. All right. There's such a thing as being too hot, people. It's time to trim your positions on some of these sizzling IPOs. Stick with more established names in the game like Salesforce or Adobe if you're trying to figure out what to be involved in. And recognize that no one ever got hurt taking a profit. Much more mad money at. Is the rally in Fang and Friends enough to push this market higher? I'll tell you why the narrowness of this rally has called the move into question. Then, it's a private player that counts Shake Shack, Danny, K-Shack's Danny Meyer as an investor. I've got the exclusive with the CEO of Olo to find out what makes the company so compelling. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. I admit, the narrowness of of this phase of the advance is beginning to call into question whether we have an advance at all. Yes, it's this small, this weak, this pathetic, and this limited to fang and the friends of some of the small caps that we talk about. That's what I emphasized at the top of the show. Even as you know, it's not just fang, and I've given you a bunch of other examples of what's really working. It doesn't fit the negative narrative. But what happened? Why did we lose so many good stocks? 
because of tariff headlines, I think. The media has pronounced the global expansion over. That's what's happened. In response, buyers are crowding into the smaller cap domestic companies that do well when the U.S. employment is strong and into the secular growth tech companies that don't need a robust global economy, especially the cloud and cybersecurity plays. And yes, FANG. It's kind of crazy. I read so many articles that seem to suggest that the changing fortunes of the world economy are directly the result of Trump's trade policies. But kind of nothing else, frankly. It's as though Trump is the ruler of the universe, not the president of the United States. These guys need to learn that correlation does not necessarily imply causation. Here's how I hear it explained. Because our president has put a 25% tariff on steel and 10% tariff on aluminum, potentially setting off a chain reaction of retaliatory tariffs from our trading partners, the whole world is slowing. That is the accepted wisdom. Just plain and simple. Don't quibble with me on that because you know it's true. Of course, if you bother to read these articles, they quickly take the issues down from the world to Europe and North America. Then it gets distilled twice uh, just uh, like a good vodka, into examples that are about Canada and Germany and occasionally Italy. I struggle over this Canada, for example. It's, uh, Canada is the world's 16th largest importer of steel and imports from 80 countries. They don't need steel from the United States. Plus, Canada is the world's 17th largest economy. It's not like they could be a major source of global weakness, even if they wanted to. Germany, on the other hand, is the fifth largest steel exporter in the world. 5% of its exports go to the U.S., 5%. Crimea River. At the same time, I've read several articles about steel outfits in our own country that say the tariffs are unnecessary. When I decided to follow up and randomly examine the biggest steel tariff detractor quoted in some of these stories, I learned that the outfit was largely a steel importer whose business is being crimped by the tariffs, not a manufacturer who would benefit from the tariffs. No wonder this fella hates the tariffs. It just wears me out, people. Now, look, there is an honest argument here that a tit-for-tat trade war could spiral out of control and cause real harm to the global economy. But that hasn't happened yet, and it may not happen at all. The steel tariffs alone are not causing a worldwide slowdown. So let's think, could there be another reason for the breakdown of the synchronized global growth story that's doing so much damage to the multinational stocks? Perhaps something non-Trump related. Here's a crazy idea. Could it maybe have something to do with the price of oil? In the last year, the price of crude has increased by 50%. This has put a real crimp on the earnings of any companies that need oil and gas, either as a raw feedstock or fuel. Think many of the manufacturers, the airlines, the cruise lines. Even though both the U.S. and Europe are net importers of oil, the Europeans import a heck of a lot more than we do because they have very little domestic production. You know we have large domestic production. At the same time, we've seen some real important weaknesses in Europe banks, in the European banks all over the place. They're revolving around defaults and management snafus and a lack of capital. I think the lack of a strong, healthy banking system is holding Europe back more than any steel or aluminum tariffs, which brings me full circle. The CEOs of the big American multinational companies haven't said a word to me on or off the record about the impact of these tariffs, aside from the fact that they're pretty much small potatoes. Hence, here's where I come down. If you can find me a single credible manufacturing CEO from this country who blame the global slowdown on the tariffs and not much higher oil prices or European banking regulations, I am happy to change my mind. But until then, whether you love Trump or you hate him, the truth is that he's not responsible for the weakness we're seeing overseas. A 25% tariff on steel from one country is nothing compared to a 50% increase in the price of oil worldwide. Stick with Kramer. It is time. It's time for the White Man. 
Play the sound. And then the lightning rounds over. Are you ready, Skiing Daddy? Time for the night of I'm going to start with Joel in Pennsylvania. Joel. Uh, booyah, Jim. Uh, hey, I'd like to know your thoughts on Praxair. Oh, my, am I glad you called me on Praxair. This is exactly what I'm talking about, about negativity. If the world were really coming to an end, Praxair would be a sell. But it's not, and it's a buy. Let's go to G- uh, Tim in California. Tim. Hey, Jim. I've uh, been in this stock for a while in Trexon, symbol XON. You wondering know, it's a total we spec. Uh, we tried to get behind it. I just think that there's t- they're doing a lot of things, but it is totally a spec. And no more than that, I got to be honest. Okay, let's go to John in Michigan. John. Hey, Jim. I love your show. Thank uh, you. Wanted to know what you thought was on uh, CenturyLink. You know, I like the merger, but I still feel that every time I've gone a- away from Verizon and ATT, I have heard people. That's what the 11% uh, yield is about. And I'm just not going to bless that stock. Don't buy. Don't buy. Even though I know that acquisition was pretty good. Let's go to Amelia in Connecticut. Amelia. Oh, yeah, Jim. What a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah. And- possibly get uh, your take on a stock I've been holding for a while, ICU Medical. Yeah, disposable condition. You know, this is actually a kind of an interesting company. It's, no, 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 no. I mean, this is one of those, look, when we get, whether it be Articure, whether it be this, when we get these medical device companies, they tend to be big winners and they have less downside. Look at Boston Scientific, uh, it, uh, Intuitive Surgical, uh, Mazer Robotics. They all work. That's why we're behind that group. And don't forget, we think the least expensive is Abbott Labs, but we also like Dexcom. How about George in New York? George. Hey, Jim. Thanks so much for taking my call. Of I course. love your program. I invested in uh, Momo, the Chinese uh, social messaging company a couple of months ago and it's been on a tear you've done well in that what are your thoughts well, you know, I'm recommending Baidu, I'm recommending Balzun, and my favorite is, is Alibaba, and that's all I'm going on. I understand, J.D., and this one are working, but I'm not able to pull the trigger. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. As I mentioned at the top of the show, and by the way, also my Twitter file, the worry warts are winning. At least that's how like it feels on a day like today, despite the late afternoon comeback. But when you hear experts fretting about trade wars and more hawkish Federal Reserve, you need to remember that some themes transcend the business cycle. Not everything's hostage to the economy. Some stories will keep working no matter what. Think digitization. These days, restaurants and retailers need to embrace online ordering if they want to stay relevant. Most millennials never want to speak to another human being if they don't absolutely have to. If they want to buy something, they just use the Internet. So any restaurant or retailer that doesn't offer online ordering is at a severe disadvantage. Which brings me to Olo, a privately held company that creates digital ordering interfaces for restaurants so that, they, so that customers can get takeout or delivery via their phones. The value proposition? If you have your own platform, you don't need to pay Grubhub a cut of every order. And it is a substantial cut. 
All those work with Shake Shack, Denny's, Chili's, the Cheesecake Factory, even Chipotle. In fact, of the publicly traded U.S. restaurants that are going digital, these guys are in business with half of them. And lately, they've also begun to expand into retail, too. So let's check in with Noah Glass, the CEO of OLO, O-L-O to learn more about it, this powerful long-term story. Mr. Glass, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Jim. Thank you. Have a seat. Since we've seen you, I'm talking about remarkable success. Just trace the arc because it's been so rewarding for your, for your company. Well, it's been totally amazing. I mean, we were 12,000 restaurants in our network when we first sat down together in October of 15. Now we're at 48,000 restaurants, and over half of the public brands are using Olo for digital ordering and delivery of those that are involved in digital ordering and delivery. Now, uh, if you had, if restaurants had to start over again, wouldn't this be uh, the first thing they do versus, say, uh, people calling just or showing up? Sure. I mean, there's a very big part of the restaurant segment that is customers coming to the restaurant right. and sitting down. But if you look at what analysts are saying about the next five years, they're predicting that $200 billion in an $800 billion industry is going to shift towards digital ordering and delivery. And we really see that our role is helping our restaurant brands, our customers, be the great beneficiaries of that shift. All right. So give me a a test case example and and talk to me about how their business has gotten better because they hired you guys. Yeah. So we see great success in brands just doing digital ordering. Year over year, digital ordering is up 31% when you look at same store sales. That's as people get the app is what what, what, what determines that. More consumers getting the app, more consumers getting comfortable using on-demand services, thinking about the app as a remote control for buying things and not just going to pick up the order, but getting it delivered. Delivered to them. That's really where our focus has been the last three years. Okay, now you have a partnership with Amazon. If I want to uh, use my Amazon Whole Foods, can I get the app and use you? So the idea of our partnership with Amazon is through Amazon Restaurants, which is okay. part of Prime Now, and that's about placing an order at one of the restaurant brands that uses Olo through Amazon Restaurants, and then getting it delivered from Amazon. Okay, so then what is the retail uh, ones that you've been working on? Yeah, so we're really excited. I mean, everybody wants to get things delivered faster. Sure. It used to be that two-day delivery was fast enough. Now, I mean, what if you could get things delivered same hour? You know, for oh 13 my. years, we've been working with an industry that, that demands that kind right. of speed. I mean, you can't deliver a cheeseburger in two days. You need to have it delivered same hour. And what we've done is we've created a platform called Dispatch. And what Dispatch does is it coordinates the prep of the order with the driver coming to collect the order. And on average, it's a 12-minute delivery time right. from the store to the door. So now we're opening that up for all retailers, not just restaurants, and allowing rest- retailers to compete with online retailers on convenience by delivering same hour. Now, uh, what point does Olo uh, drop it off? I mean, the drivers, is that you? The drivers is not us. We've right. partnered so with we, all of the delivery be, service well, providers. Well, the reason I worry about is that's where the weak link has been, that mm-hmm. there's just not enough anywhere. So, I mean, you may, may enable, but the actual customer gets upset if there's, if there's not enough drivers. What do you advise to these, these companies that are involved? Because, yep. you know, they may have more business they can handle. Yeah, you, if you're a restaurant, you need to partner with more than just one delivery service right. provider, and that's where Dispatch comes in. It is a redundant network in that we work with many different delivery service providers. And so if you're placing an order, we will pull all the different delivery providers that serve that restaurant okay. and find one to go collect the order just in time and then deliver it to you on average 12 minutes. Oh, that's terrific. It up. That's true. Now, are there... Uh are there two? Is there a two-line problem anywhere? In other words, is everyone willing to handle uh, the uh, online ordering? Uh, because I'll tell you why I mentioned this. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I'm in line and somebody comes in front of me, mm-hmm. and it pisses me off, frankly. And what do you do about that? 
Well, look, I, I think this is very much like easy pass on the highway. Okay. You have the experienced people who have not adopted the new technology, the Luddites, and you right. have the, the experience for the people who have adopted the technology. That is the best demonstration effect for us to get more customers learning that you can order in this way and ordering faster. And it's not just other customers who are picking up at that fast pickup line. It's also delivery couriers who are getting the orders there. They get to skip the line, right. and they go straight from the restaurant to the right. They do it the same place, same at my place. Now, one last question: You have the story that we want. Uh, you know, we've got Grubhub. We can order. We can buy that. We can have Yelp. Whatever we want. Olo. We want Olo shares. You were doing a remarkable job. Just no desire, kind of a pain to be a public company because you know there would be tremendous demand based on where Grubhub is. Yeah, look, I'm really excited about the growth of the company. We're up 4x since we saw one another yeah. last. Um, I've got great investors who have been with me for over 10 years who are patient, and they see 48,000 restaurants is great, but there are 630,000 restaurants out there. There's so much room to grow, and they're uh, great partners in backing me uh, for the next decade. Hopefully. Well, they are great partners, and if they're not pressuring you. You want to be able to take a lot of share. That's fantastic. That's Noah Glass, the CEO of Olo. I love a success story. I know it's not public, but even in the time since we first got together, what amazing statistics. Mad Money's back after the break. On an all-new American Greed, an online crook sells counterfeit luxury goods, and when customers complain, he threatens them with violence, even murder. It's an $18 million scam that robs people of more than money. Tonight at 10, right here on CNBC. Yes, I thought things were too gloomy. I am surprised to see that the gloom lifted around 3 o'clock. But do not forget, the Gloomsters will be back tomorrow with endless articles on how the economy is being wrecked by the Trump tariffs. Find me a CEO who agrees, okay? Find me one. Like I said, there's always more work. So I promise I'm to find it just for your radio man money. I'm Jim Cramer. I'll see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day, clearly and concisely, in context and with perspective, and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.